Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to The Bar. The Bar on Healthcare is a podcast produced by the Aon Health Solutions Group, focusing on developments in federal and state health and welfare law and their impact on employer group health plans. I'm J.D. Pirro of the Legal Consulting Group. And hello, everyone. I'm Carrie Willis, also with the Legal Consulting Group. If you're listening to this podcast on Aon.com, we're very glad to have you. But it'd be easier for you and, frankly, better for us if you made us part of your regular feed. Just search for The Bar on Healthcare on any of the streaming services where you normally get your podcasts, from Google Play to Apple Podcasts. Then subscribe, tell your friends, and please leave us a kind review. And JD, the bar is open. Indeed we are. Come right in. Your favorite spot awaits. We are glad you're with us. And Carrie, we've got a potpourri of topics today that we've been collecting over the last couple of months. And I'd like to start with a topic that we haven't talked about in a while as it's fallen off our radar screen, but the pandemic brought it back and it's kind of floated around in the background here. So let's bring it to the forefront. And that's the topic of the Affordable Care Act, specifically the public exchanges and the number of people on health insurance. As I said, the public exchanges have faded from the headlines recently, but they are currently setting record enrollment numbers. A record 14 and a half million people have signed up for health insurance through the public exchanges for 2022. Now, why the increase? Well, I can think of at least three reasons. First, you've got increased financial assistance under the American Rescue Plan. That was the plan that Democrats passed in Congress last year. That law increased the subsidies that help people afford their premiums and also lifted the income cap to allow more people to be eligible for premium assistance. Second, there's been a lot more publicity about this. It might have flown under the radar, but the Biden administration reversed the cuts to outreach and advertising spending that was made by the Trump administration. The Trump administration, as we remember from all that discussion from a couple of years ago, they weren't the biggest fans of the public exchanges. They felt that, you know, hey, it's been out there for a couple of years. People already know it. So there's no reason to spend on advertising. Biden administration reversed that. It's apparently had an effect. And I think third, maybe this should have been the first reason I listed, but I think you have to say the pandemic. With the number of layoffs that occurred in 2020, the number of people who dropped out of the workforce, COBRA still remains way too expensive for most people to afford. And the need for healthcare, obviously, especially with COVID and the numbers starting, the need for healthcare really remains high. Even as you see those numbers starting to trend downward, people still don't want to let go of their healthcare coverage. Now, why do I mention all this? Because one of those reasons for the increase, the enhanced financial assistance under the American Rescue Plan, well, that's currently scheduled to expire at the end of this year. The only vehicle that would extend that financial assistance is the Build Back Better plan, which, as we know, Carrie, that kind of cratered at the end of last year. So, Carrie, where does all that stand? Are we going to see anything come out of Build Back Better, either in a comprehensive form or maybe broken up into chunks? Well, I think we're not going to see Build Back Better in the form that it was proposed last year. I don't think we're going to see that move through Congress at all. We may see bits and pieces of it, as you referred to, but there's an obvious problem with chunking it up. And JD, why don't you talk about that a little bit? Well, I think the problem with chunking it up is one of the reasons that Build Back Better was so close to being passed, and again, close only counts in horseshoes. You know, one of the reasons it was close was because it was going through based on reconciliation, that you only needed 50 votes plus one, either another senator or the vice president to get it through. And they could not get to up to 50. They couldn't. They got only to 48. Senators Manchin and Cinema decided they didn't like Build Back Better and they didn't like pieces of it. So that kind of went to the wayside. If there is going to be any possibility that financial assistance for healthcare premiums is going to be extended, you're going to need to break that filibuster. You're going to need to get at least 10 more votes out of the Republicans. That's assuming that Senator Sinema and Manchin come along with this. Otherwise, I think you see this expire at the end of the year. And Kerry, I'm not really very confident that you're going to be able to, especially as the elections come closer, 
I'm not sure that you're going to be able to get that type of vote from the Republican side. You may see three or four people, maybe, you know, the ones who aren't running for election again, but I can't see the Republicans giving that type of victory to the Democrats so close to an election year. Yeah, I would agree with that. And the other thing I would say is, you know, people might be thinking, well, why couldn't you just pass each piece of this through the reconciliation process? And the answer to that is because you can only have one reconciliation bill for a budget year. So really, you can only have one per year. And so that's why you couldn't chunk it up and try to pass each piece through the reconciliation process. Yeah, I think you're probably not going to see, you know, a lot of action on this. Again, we've been wrong before on this stuff, or at least I wouldn't want to speak for you, Carrie. At least I've been wrong before on this stuff. I have definitely been wrong before. <laughs> but we'll see what happens. But in terms of priorities of Congress, one of the things that has been a priority is mental health parity. And last month, Congress came down, well, Congress received, I should say, a report on activities related to mental health parity. Carrie, for our second topic, why don't you tell us about you know what that report said and what the reaction was? Right. So as you said, JD, last month, the Departments of Labor, Treasury, and HHS submitted a report to Congress on on their enforcement activities related to the Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act compliance, or MAPIA, as it's known. Now, JD, I know this is not your favorite topic, but it is one that is getting a lot of attention from the DOL in particular. Well, Carrie, to quote Clint Eastwood in Magnum Force, a man has to know his limitations. I am happy to let you go forward and be the expert on this and just to provide color commentary. Okay. Well, so this report that the agencies submitted to Congress focused mainly on non-quantitative treatment limits and health plans. Okay, now I can stop you right there and tell you exactly what does that non-quantitative treatment limits in healthcare plans, what does that mean? So non-quantitative treatment limits are things that can't necessarily be measured numerically. So things like pre-authorization requirements, provider reimbursement rates, provider network admission criteria, and how those types of limits are applied when it comes to medical and surgical benefits versus how they are applied when it comes to mental health and substance use disorder benefits. And, you know, there's a lot of technical details like there always are, but the bottom line is you can't apply those NQTLs more restrictively when it comes to mental health benefits than you do when it's a medical or surgical type benefit. So those types of limits have to be on a level playing field between mental health and medical surgical in order to pass muster. Am I understanding that correctly? Correct. That's absolutely correct. So one of the things that the Consolidated Appropriations Act that passed at the end of 2020 required was it required that plans provide a comparative analysis of these NQTLs to, in fact, demonstrate that any of those types of limits were not applied more restrictively to mental health benefits than they are to medical surgical benefits. So plans always had to comply with this requirement, but the CAA said, we want you to actually document it and to provide that documentation to the DOL if they ask for it. So really, we're talking about here, trust but verify, is that it? Correct. So the report that the agency sent to Congress really outlined some interesting findings related to those requirements. First, the DOL essentially said that none of the comparative analyses that were submitted to them upon request from the plans initially included 
included the type and the amount of information that the DOL wanted to see. There were a lot of requests to the DOL to provide more guidance to plans and perhaps even a model comparative analysis. So plans would know exactly what the DOL was looking for. So I think the bottom line here is if the DOL didn't get exactly what they were looking for, then perhaps there does need to be more guidance to plans to say, hey, this is exactly what we want you to provide. So that was the first piece of information that was in the report. The second piece was that the DOL also found that many of these plans included restrictions on mental health benefits that were problematic on their face, things such as limiting applied behavioral analysis therapy when the plan otherwise covered autism spectrum disorder, or the plan that covered nutritional counseling for medical conditions, but did not cover nutritional counseling when it was related to the treatment of a mental health condition. So that was a second issue that the DOL reported on. And then third, plans were in certain cases found to have applied the NQTLs in the actual administration in a way that was more restrictive when it came to mental health benefits than it did for medical benefits. So it's not only how is the plan designed, but how is it actually being administered in practice when any of those limitations are being applied. So we could spend at least four episodes talking about this, and I might like it, but you would probably hate it. I have a new co-host at that point, you know, <laughs> well into four episodes. <laughs> but the bottom line here is that MAPIA really is an enforcement priority for the government, and plans should really be taking a look at their plan provisions, as well as making sure that any NQTLs are being administered appropriately in practice, and that this is all documented, and that a sufficient comparative analysis is available if the DOL requests it and the plan's prepared for that request. You know, we've always said here at the bar that there's an inverse relationship between the rate of federal and state healthcare reform. So as you see the federal government gear up to enforce things on the mental health side, you also see a proportionate decrease in the activity at state legislatures in terms of mental health parity. I remember all of those insurance laws that were passed a few years ago when there was this lull in federal activity in the mental health care side. States were requiring insurance insured plans to have more parity between medical and surgical benefits and mental health and substance use disorder, at least on the insured side. So it's been our experience, actually, that as you point out, as healthcare reform heats up in one area, it cools off in another area. And I have to say, then in terms of our third topic here, this has been illustrated once again in the state of California, because once again, they put the kibosh on single-payer health care, which, as you recall, was a big issue in the 2020 election. Democrats in the state Senate in 2017 in California passed a bill for a single-payer health care system, but it died in the state assembly because it didn't include revenue to pay for it. Last month, the California State Assembly resurrected the bill, and what happened? Well, it met the same fate. What would that bill have done? The California bill would have covered all residents of California, abolished all forms of medical cost sharing. No deductibles, no co-payments, no prior authorizations for treatment or the use of step therapy to contain costs would have authorized a state to create a drug formulary. It also would have covered dental benefits, vision benefits, along with long-term care. You can imagine that cost goes up 
way, way high when you start adding in all those benefits. What put the nail in the coffin, though, was how they were going to pay for it. A 2.3% excise tax on businesses with more than $2 million in annual gross receipts, a one and a quarter payroll tax on employers with 50 or more workers, a 1% payroll tax on workers earning more than $50,000, and a progressive surtax to start at 0.5% of income over $150,000, rising to 2.5% at roughly $2.5 million. Kerry, we've seen this type of legislation, single-payer legislation, tried in Vermont. It's been talked about in New York. It's been tried several times in California over the last 20 years. We've also seen it at the federal area as well, where we had the big debate about single-payer a couple of years ago. Is this type of thing, whether it's at the federal or state level, is this really doomed to failure, or does it really just have to be tried more intensely, you know, like at the federal level to, to really succeed? I mean, where do we see this debate going? Well, I mean, the cost issue, as you pointed out, has always been the death now for these types of programs. That's what's killed it in every state that has tried to look at passing a single-payer type program. In fact, the only statewide healthcare system program I can recall that's actually passed is the Massachusetts program, which of course was the model for the Affordable Care Act. So I don't think we're going to see any type of single-payer program come up in Congress, particularly if there's a change in control after the next election. Of, I guess I should say if there's a change in control and we get a lot more senators like Senator Sanders in then perhaps, but I don't really think that that's a, a likely option there. No, Bernie, I think is one of a kind. But have we seen anything in terms of a discussion at the federal level in terms of any of the familiar provisions we've heard before? Yeah, and there is always discussion going on at the federal level about how to address the healthcare system overall. In fact, the House Education and Labor Subcommittee on Health, Employment, Labor and Pensions did hold just such a hearing recently. It was entitled Exploring Pathways to Affordable Universal Health Care. And, you know, frankly, the discussion focused on many of the familiar provisions we've heard before. Should we try a single payer system? Should we eliminate government subsidies for employer provided health care coverage to bring costs down? That sounds familiar. You're probably thinking of the Cadillac tax. There was also a discussion about increasing subsidies in the exchange, like we talked about and like was part of Build Back Better, um, and figuring out a way to bring down health care costs generally. But as we said, that's really easier said than done. So the debate goes on. Well, last call here. Just a couple of weeks ago, the NFL ended its regular season, which featured a January full of great playoff games and a very exciting Super Bowl. In fact, the only thing more exciting than the Super Bowl would have been what people usually do after the Super Bowl, which is count the days to spring training. Unfortunately, that hasn't happened as Major League Baseball remains in a lockout between players and owners. Here at the bar, we're not going to take sides on who's right or who's wrong. As far as we're concerned, cheering for one side or the other is what the regular baseball season is for. So, We'll lift a glass and to our sincere hope that labor and management can come together, settle their differences in a timely fashion, and allow us to hear those words that signal the end of winter and the start of spring. Play ball. Yeah, and let me just say our listeners will know if I have a new co-host if we have something other than a sports story for a last call. (laughs) And on that note, that's our report for today. We'd like to thank our producer, Don Moorhead, as always, for making us sound much better than we deserve. From all of us here at Aon, I'm Carrie Willis. And I'm J.D. Pirro. Thanking you for your time this time. And until next time, the bar is closed.